losing money Dead, get me out of this All right, we are back. I'm sorry to note that uh, in the last couple of months, I've been pulled against my will into the American judicial system. Can't talk about it too much, but anyone who's been in this circumstance knows that he or she has gone through the looking glass. But I do want to start out by modifying an old doctor joke, which is as follows. What do you call the doctor who finished last in his medical school class? The answer is doctor. My question is, what do you call the lawyer who finishes last in his law school class? The answer appears to be your honor. Now let's take a look at our our legal system for a little detour here. Starting with this item. Lawyer gets 18 months for fondling clients. Article by Andy Ferrio in the B noted that three women told the court how their one-time divorce lawyer violated their trust, made them suspicious of professionals like him, and how he took advantage of their acute psychic vulnerability. They wanted prison for it, and last week they got it. 18 months worth. This lawyer apparently pleaded no contest to four counts related to fondling his divorce clients under the pretense of giving them medical help. Here's a lesson for you, ladies and gentlemen. Don't go to lawyers for medical help. After all, you wouldn't go to your doctor for legal advice, would you? In that case, the only thing your doctor would have to offer is logic and common sense. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is of very little value in a court of law. I do like some of the exchanges that took place in this, in this case. Apparently, the lawyer, after, after entering his no-contest plea two months earlier, asked the court for a few days of free time so I can get my affairs in order. To which the judge responded, No, sir, this is not a pop quiz. You've been here before. According to the story, the Sacramento County Sheriff's detectives launched an investigation of this attorney uh, when a woman told them he made her take off her tank top and then reached into her pants during a divorce consultation. Further advice, ladies and gentlemen, if during a divorce consultation your lawyer reaches into your pants, you should find a new lawyer. In defense of attorneys, I do want to add that if a lawyer is reaching into your pants, generally, he's trying to find your wallet. Now, apparently, this attorney did have a pharmacy degree on his office wall, and one of his clients noted he did check her breathing with a stethoscope. He pounded her knees with a rubber mallet, then conducted what was described as something along the lines of a breast exam. In offering something along the lines of a defense... The attorney told the court he had suffered from, quote, unaddressed mental issues, unquote, that he did not specify. Anyway, going from bad to worse, how about this? Phil Garrido, the man who evidence would suggest kidnapped J.C. Dugard, age 11, back in 1991. And we have to say the evidence is pretty strong in this, being that she was found in his backyard, having borne two of his children. Well, the DA says trial in this case may be two years away. Two years away. Because why exactly? We don't know. They probably don't need to gather up a whole lot of new evidence. 
Article notes that attorneys were meeting together and they were discussing uh, discovery issues and they were moving the thing forward in time and yada, 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 yada. And I guess it's slow. As long as you're on, uh, on the clock, no hurry, huh? Kind of an unusual case, getting national attention uh, in the Sacramento area. The, the woman who, uh, the woman, Jennifer Strange, who went on a radio contest and drank a lot of water, wound up dying from water intoxication. Well, the jury got together and wrote down figures of what they thought the damages ought to be. They averaged it out, and it came to $16.5 million. The radio station, by the way, was judged 100% responsible for the woman's death. Sorry as this story may be, how can it be the victim bears no responsibility for willingly participating in an admittedly dangerous and stupid contest? I mean, you know, we agree that the station, you know, should bear responsibility and that, you know, damages should be awarded. But, you know, when you go into a jury room, people just write down figures on a notepad and they average them out. Is that any way to conduct judicial proceedings? Speaking of that, the city of Sacramento has apparently hired a law firm to look into the Natomas permits probe. It has to do with some issues of potential favoritism from uh, some new home permits that the city granted to a developer, uh, apparently in violation of a federally mandated building ban in place until the levees in the area get reinforced. Of course, one has to ask the question, when you do a gigantic major development out in a flood zone, well, you just have to suspect a little bit of malfeasance somewhere along the way, don't you? Another legal item we like, Jeffrey Skilling. Remember him? Former CEO of Enron, convicted in 2006 on 19 counts of conspiracy, securities fraud, insider trading, and lying to auditors. Well, believe it or not, folks, the Supreme Court is going to hear the appeal of Jeffrey Skilling. Skilling, now serving a 24-year prison term, says he was improperly convicted under the law. He says, <laughs> "This is I love this. He says prosecutors did not show that he personally benefited from his allegedly fraudulent actions. Gosh, how would you establish a thing like that? The giant bank account? The private jets? The mansions? I don't know. I hope the Supreme Court can look into this and determine whether Mr. Skilling did personally benefit from any of his conspiracies, securities frauds, insider trading, or lying. I don't know. I think Antonin Scalia has already put out a paper saying that he thinks Skilling already has a good chance he may prevail. Of course, I'm lying when I say that. Inspired by Mr. Skilling, I would might add. But no, we haven't forgotten the fact that uh, that was what Antonin Scalia said when Bush v. Gore was put up as a possible uh, thing they, that our chief justices might want to get involved in. And yes, he did say that before hearing any of the evidence. Just like to throw that little reminder out now and again. Anyway, let's take a look overseas at some of what the other legal systems are up to. Over in South Korea, they convicted Hwang Woo Suk, the scientist at the center of the cloning research scandal. Well, he was convicted of taking grant money under false pretenses, as well as embezzling some of the funds. Apparently, the South Korean court said the scientist had, quote, truly repented, unquote. They cleared him of separate fraud charges and suspended two years of his three-year sentence. Critics note that the lenient sentence he's received is not going to discourage scientific fraud. Mr. Huang did lose his license to conduct stem cell research back in 2006, which we think is the least they can do for a guy who, who lied about uh, 
about successfully cloning human stem cells and raised everybody's hopes that the breakthrough would produce cures for Alzheimer's and other diseases. Why couldn't they make him Bernie Madoff's roommate? Oh, oh, they're in South Korea, that's why. And speaking of South Korea and moving away from legal matters, we have the following item. Last week, more than 45,000 people got married, many to strangers, in simultaneous ceremonies officiated by the Reverend Sun Myung Moon, who apparently did his officiating live via webcast. This was the largest mass wedding for the Unification Church in a decade, and it's noted it might be the last one for Moon, who turns 90 in a few months. Moon's church apparently picks spouses for its members, usually pairing people from different countries. And of course, you know, many people have called it a cult. Given that Moon is a self-proclaimed Messiah who says that Jesus Christ called upon him to carry out his unfinished work. And and frankly, I had no idea that Jesus had set out to marry 40,000 people at the same time. But then, I admit, I'm no religious scholar. I must say, I don't feel all that sorry for someone who marries a stranger from another country because his church officials suggested it was a good idea. Speaking of wacky church decisions, we love the fact that Pope Benedict XVI is trying to woo Anglicans back over to the Catholic Church side of things. As we all know, the Anglican Church was established in 1534 after the Pope refused Henry VIII's request for an annulment of his marriage to Catherine of Aragon. He wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, but Catherine apparently was the niece of the Pope. But uh, the Pope's trying to sweeten the deal. He's saying that Anglicans can retain their own rights as long as they recognize him as their leader. The notoriously conservative Popes apparently saw an opening here because a lot of Anglicans opposed their own church's liberal reforms, including the ordination of women and allowing gays to be bishops. This loophole, however, apparently is going to allow Anglican priests, who are allowed to marry, to become Catholic priests. And, and we have to state right away, we have no knowledge as to whether Anglican priests regarded rubbing around as being the same as putting it in. But you can bet we're going to look into that one. And uh, speaking of other English-speaking nations, and that's a pretty lame segue, I realize. Better to say, perhaps, from the miscellaneous file, we have this item. Stephen Lautens, writing in the Calgary Sun and reprinted in The Week, had the following to say about uh, the health care debate. Americans have been fed a pack of lies about Canadian health care, said Stephen. I just got back from a trip to the U.S. South, and it was an eye-opener. Everyone was talking about the U.S. health reform proposals, and the one thing they could all agree on was they didn't want to end up like Canada. Fox News and other conservative media outlets routinely claim that in Canada, the government assigns you a doctor and you have to wait for months for an appointment and years for vital life-saving surgery. When I told them that we pick our own doctors, see them virtually whenever we want, and pay nothing for the privilege, their jaws dropped. When I further explained that a wildly popular Fox News story about Canada's hospital death committees, which supposedly pulled the plug on old people to save money, Explained that was a complete fabrication. I had their rapt attention. One uninsured American told me about a $15,000 MRI she was slowly paying off, while those with insurance complained of being unable to afford the medicines their doctors had prescribed. When I left that crowd, they were thinking that, even if it's not perfect, Canada is a pretty good country. 
And you know, when you take a brief trip back to that whole issue about executive pay, article in the B recently, articles all over the place about uh, how we can reform health care, they seem to miss the fact, the key fact, that in America, 40% of our health care dollars go to administration. In Germany and other European countries, it's under 10. So American healthcare seems to suffer from the same disease you see on Wall Street. Executives that are taking gigantic paychecks home for reasons that, uh, well, this correspondent is unable to discern. And, you know, I, I've known quite a few healthcare executives in my time. And when I meet one that earns his paycheck, well, I've never done it, but when I do meet one, it'll be the first. But I like the comments in the Washington Times about some of these efforts to, uh, to rein in executive pay on Wall Street. The Washington Times, we would add, is owned by the Unification Church of South Korea. And this unbiased <laughs> periodical had the following to say. As formulated by Treasury Pay Czar Kenneth Feinberg, a trial lawyer with no business experience, the curbs will only encourage executives to leave for greener pastures where the Obama administration does not hold sway. Ladies and gentlemen, if these executives can be <laughs> encouraged to pack up their bags and move off to greener pastures, well, that might get them out of managing our money, which would be a pretty good thing, I think. Writing in that uh, commie pinko left-wing publication, Fortune, Colin Barr had the following to say. Those traders in suits don't exactly have an unblemished record. In the current job market, the firms that lost executives should have little trouble finding replacements. It's high time that financial executives shake off their sense of entitlement and acknowledge what is glaringly obvious to cubicle dwellers everywhere. Which is, the fact that someone has a high-paying job doesn't mean they're good at it. I don't see how anyone can object to the fact that the banks which took all of this public money, banks with compensation incentives that encouraged excessive risk-taking are going to be required to revise their pay systems. Well, this should have been done years ago. Of course, the editorial in the LA Times warns us that since both the Bush and Obama administrations gave some firms an implicit guarantee they won't go bankrupt, this has undermined the natural incentive of Wall Street firms to manage risk, which, which is something we don't want to be undermining these days. Only Times suggested that what really has to change is the notion that some firms are too big to fail. Although we normally do obituaries in our third segment, because that's just the way we do things around here, we're going to move one up to segment two today. Noting the passing of Bruce Wasserstein. Noted his obituary, before Bruce Wasserstein, investment banking was widely seen as a stodgy field, dominated by anonymous dealmakers working quietly with select clients. But the boisterous, disheveled Wasserstein, who died last week, changed all that. In the 1980s, he helped redefine investment banking as a flamboyant, cutthroat business by negotiating many highly public, highly priced mergers and acquisitions. Wasserstein was involved in more than 1,000 deals totaling $250 billion, with a B, dollars. Interesting history. Wasserstein started out briefly working for Ralph Nader, switched law firms, and then left law for banking, becoming head of mergers and acquisitions for First Boston. Noted the New York Times Wasser, for Wasserman, noted the New York Times for Wasserman, deal-making wasn't built on relationships, but was more akin to war, built on complex tactics and armies of bankers and lawyers. This was the guy that negotiated Colbert, Kravitz, Roberts, 
$31 billion takeover of RJR Nabisco in 1989, which was later immortalized in the book and movie, Barbarians at the Gate. I think Wasserstein's one of these guys that, you know, probably should have been out looking for greener pastures a while ago. It was noted in the year 2000 at the peak of the dot-com bubble. Wasserstein was an advisor on the AOL-Time Warner merger, considered one of the most ill-conceived corporate mergers ever. And although Forbes magazine recently estimated his wealth at $2.2 billion, which put him 147th on the list of the 400 wealthiest Americans, now he's dead. And we're quite positive Bruce was not allowed to take it with him. And at this moment, we'd like to play some appropriate bumper music, which is our favorite, Hell, by the Squirrel Nut Zippers. And we don't know for sure that he's burning in hell now. But this correspondent certainly has his suspicions. Let's take a break. Listening to Radio Parallax, I'm Douglas Everett. 